it shaped three generations of my family, the, the, the trajectory our lives had taken. And I kind of care about just, well, connecting people with opportunity by removing the barriers of geography, of skills, of interest. I always had a day job, which, you know, was boring. And I always had night activities where I was kind of moving and shaking. We felt that we're carrying the flag. So don't let the flag drop on your watch. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Today, I'm speaking with Dexter Leagut-Gordon. Dexter is the co-founder and CEO of Swarm, a community connecting founders with freelance tech builders who want to solve problems and build impactful projects together. Before Swarm, he was also the co-founder of Caliber, the first Southeast Asian startup accepted into the American startup accelerator Y Combinator, probably best known for companies like Airbnb, Stripe, Instacart, Reddit, and Twitch. But before his life as a founder, he was actually in public policy for nearly a decade, working across projects in the U.S. and breaking the glass ceiling for Filipino Americans. Hi, Dexter. So great to be speaking with you today. Awesome, Amanda. I'm super excited. So I've done my own research before this. I've gotten to speak with you before, and I'm sure, like as you know, many people have told you, uh, told me great things about you. But I think the oh. thing I wanted to ask you, you know, the most was really about like your life before you came to, to the Philippines. Like what was your early life like growing up, especially as somebody who was like Filipino American um, in the US? I recently gave a talk and I made a very provocative statement, which was no one is qualified to be a founder. And I'll I'll tell you why. My because my background did not align with a path that signaled I would be a tech founder. I grew up in San Francisco, the mecca of all startups. Um, I went to school because I thought I was going to be a social studies teacher, but then I got involved uh, in government. For a time, I had actually held pretty high office. I was in the Board of Regents for the University of California, my whole career was geared towards people thought I was going to run for office. And I was involved in, the pol- in a policy space called uh, workforce development. Boring. It sounds boring, but it's actually kind of interesting. I was, very, I, I was trying to figure out how government could prepare people for jobs in high-growth industries. Um, so there's an education element and a job-matching element. So my whole career has been building policies, government-focused programs. My last kind of major project working was uh, working for the mayor of San Francisco. I managed their um, workforce plan um, for the city. And it was, it was the strategic plan. I'd work with all, like government, private sector, so on and so forth. So that was my life before, before the Philippines. Um, I'd never managed 
anyone before. I'd never worked in tech before. And frankly, I'd never even worked in the private sector. So it was just, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was an unconventional path. But what, what I did have was kind of a personal North Star. I was always concerned about creating pathways for people to get work, right? Three generations of my family left the Philippines because there was not opportunity for the skills that they had. My grandfather left. He was a seaman. My mom um, became a realtor um, and moved to the United States. So this kind of narrative about connecting people with work, it's kind of, it shaped three generations of my family, the, the, the trajectory our lives had taken. And I kind of care about just, well, connecting people with opportunity by removing the barriers of geography, of skills, of interest. So that's kind of like how I was working through that kind of core issue, connecting people with work um, by removing barriers. And um, it so happened that in 2012, um, there was a mayoral election in San Francisco. Um, and I, I think that like, I actually was appointed to be the chief of staff for one of the viable candidates. And I came to the realization that I cared more about solving this work problem, connecting people with work, rather than the politics itself. And I had kind of a crisis of identity because I came to the realization that if I pursued a career in politics, it would have destroyed my character. It would have destroyed my kind of sense of well-being because I'm not a confrontational person. I'm not necessarily somebody who needs to win in order to succeed. I, I always, I'm, I'm the kind of person who loves solving problems. So I decided to resign. I decided to move to the Philippines, my ancestral homeland, to just wait out the election and take time and space to figure things out. So I had no, literally no agenda in mind. Yeah, you just wanted to come back after a tough time, I guess. Just have new place yeah. to get away from it all. Yeah, and, and also like, you know, I was, I was pretty good at what I did in the US. Like I was, I, I, I built the reputation as a strategist and a problem solver uh, and a system builder, um, both in terms of government and in politics. But my identity, the way in which people viewed me and the career that I thought I would have would be one where I was an elected official. And when I decided that that was not the path for me, I was like, well, I don't know what's going to come next. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, that, that's, why, that's why I ended up just taking time off. I mean, how would you know, right? It, it was your life, right, for a couple of years. And then you realize that, like, okay. Surprise, the, the path I've been walking for a while is not what I want. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't know, like, an, I, I, it's certainly something I didn't plan for. And it was more than a couple of years. It was like a decade. I was 10 years in. I'm um, dating myself. But I was like, you know, I was my, <laughs> 32, you know, when I moved back to Manila. Mm-hmm. I think you, you mentioned that your, your family shaped a lot about how you care so much about matching people to job opportunities. And then you said, you know, your grandfather was a seaman, your mom was a realtor and she went to the U S to to find the job. 
but how did that shape you sort of as a young boy? Were there like key moments that you remember were really impactful for you? Because I, I don't think like you suddenly just from a young age tell yourself, yeah, I care a lot about jobs and job matching, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh it's it's one of those things. Well, education had always been a major theme in my family. Uh, the reason why my my granddad, uh, you know, became a seaman was so they could pay for a good education for his six children, right? And my mom, you know, you know, she wanted to earn enough independently so she could send me and my brother to to good schools. And it was explicit uh, that you have to prioritize your education. You have to do well in school because our family, our families are sacrificing so much for that. So growing up, there was always this tie between work and education and education back to work, right? So people made sacrifices, people dislocated themselves such that they could earn enough to pay for education. And they wanted to provide an education. My parents, my grandparents wanted to provide an education to create social mobility for me for my uh, and my parents' generation. So, you know, I think that it was something that actually was explicit, right? It may, maybe not the matching part, but getting a good education was always important and getting a good job was always important. There were people who made sacrifices so I could have both of those. And I think just as a, from a, how I kind of connect that to like my, my why, my broader sense of purpose, systems exist or systems can be created to create those pathways and those opportunities for others. And, you know, initially I focused on access to high quality education, like helping low-income people get access to, to really good public schools like UC Berkeley, where I went. And in later days, doing more radical things like re-envisioning how to connect people with work, even if they don't have a college degree. <laughs> what happens to the workforce? What happens? Can you create pathways for people who can just demonstrate their capabilities? And that demonstration in and of itself is a credential. In and of itself qualifies you to get a project or to get long-term employment. Were you able to make those pathways? Uh, definitely. I think like Caliber was a, was a really good example of that. And Swarm, uh, is the, my, my new company, is also a, an example of that. Caliber was like nine ways to Sunday. This was kind of what we lived and breathed. Um, first, ourselves, we didn't require a college degree. We had college dropouts who, who worked, who, who did excellent work uh, as engineers or designers um, at, at Caliber. Some of them were now kind of leading companies, college dropouts. And to remove that stigma was really important. But it meant that we had to create tooling that allowed people to demonstrate what they could do. So we actually built our own engineering assessments and then for product managers, our own case study uh, exercises such that you can demonstrate what you can do, what you can learn. So we as a company implemented these techniques for ourselves, creating alternatives 
to traditional signals like college degrees. And then we also turn those into products for our customers. So Caliber essentially used AI to personalize job search. But when you don't have certain signals like college degrees or past employment, you need alternative signals like uh, skills assessments. So we productize skills assessments that can be used to, to match people with jobs. And that's, that's kind of what differentiated Caliber. It's what effectively gave us um, kind of a stronger uh, moat when we went to market. And companies like Gojek in Indonesia scaled up their engineering teams on the backs of those assessments. So we, we knew it made an impact on, on the clients that we created. So hiring ourselves, like one of the most, uh, one of the, the best engineers that we hired in 2017, she went to UP Los Baños. She majored in math and she coded. She was a self-taught engineer and did her engineering assessment using pen and paper. Right. Um, she was so intuitively smart. She could learn and she could compute that just translated into learning new languages, solving novel problems and kind of cracking through. So, you know, you don't need to have like a college degree uh, from a prestigious institution to be good. You just need the opportunity to demonstrate it. And that's that's how we connected people with opportunity. So, so you're saying this math major was computing like for the coding assessments, which people would typically do on a computer, right? Um, but yeah. like on paper. That's right. <laughs> she and she cracked it, and that that assessment had like a point one percent, only point one percent of the people who took the assessments uh, scored perfect, and she was one of them. And how many percent of people use pen and paper <laughs> apart from her? None. Well, Nobody. none. She 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 she. Uh, she didn't pen and paper, and then she she went to an internet cafe and submitted the results. You know, the year after, the best performing engineer that we hired was he was um, a residential architect. So he does, you know, he designed houses, and he's taught himself how to be an engineer. Probably the best dressed engineer I've ever met. But what does best dress look like? <laughs> well, <laughs> like a hipster. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, he's, he's, he's one of my favorite people, so I can put, put fun in him. He, he actually joined uh, Swarm again, uh, my new company. So, you know, I think that when this is actually, this sounds like outliers, right? These are exceptions to the rule. Um, but mind you, my, my policy background is in workforce development. This is actually not exceptions to the rule. This is the opportunities you can create when you change the rules, okay? You can look for talent in places that you didn't know existed before. Um, and that is how you can create opportunity for people that don't have access. And it's also how labor markets can grow, can get access to talent when all the obvious places run out. When you remove college degrees as a as a criteria or prestigious universities as a criteria, then your pool for available talent just blows wide open. Yeah. And you're saying that these assessments are the filter that helps, you know, catch these people who typically wouldn't even be part of your talent pipeline. Right. For ourselves as a company, for Caliber as a company, for my company, and for our clients. So how do you find these people? 
Oh, well, you know, I mean, Caliber had an unfair advantage in that, you know, it was a talent platform. So people were coming to us in spades to look for work. And, you know, Caliber in and of itself became one of the, the more desirable companies to work for. I think our glass yeah. reading still like 4.9. I was just like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, phenomenal. I think we did something right. And I, I actually think it's, it's uh, you know, it's not just like our analytical framework. It's, it was embedded in our culture. We were a culture where people, we, we hired people for what they could do, not where they came from. And we had a culture that was centered on learning. So for those two reasons, I think people really wanted to work at Caliber. We paid a bit more than market, but not extraordinary. Every company I started, well, with the two, I always had to fend off like major tech companies who tried to swipe my staff. You know, in uh, in Caliber days, I was fending off Facebook and Google. Now I'm like fending off like other major uh, companies who raise a lot of money um, in the Philippines and in the region. But I take it as a compliment. How do you um, fend them off? <laughs> well, ultimately, it comes down to like the vision of the company. That's one. Uh-huh. Um, and the culture that that defines how people can participate in bringing that vision to life. Like the core, the core of Caliber and Swarm always centers like very profoundly on learning. Nobody is qualified for a job in, in a startup because you will be forced to do things that you've never done before. So yeah. really the, the meta skill that you're looking for is people's ability to learn and adapt. And the culture that you need to create needs to foster people to learn fast and to create a sense of safety, a sense of making time and space to experiment such that we can like come to decisions faster by experimenting, learning, gathering data, and iterating. Um, a lot of, I mean, this is kind of the lifeblood of a startup, iterating and pivoting. Uh, but m- many times where I think that because companies are under pressure to grow fast, they approach learning from a, uh, an iteration from a growth and pivoting point of view, but not from a cultural point of view. They don't build in the systems of learning into the culture itself. So to kind of bring it back to your question, what, like how do you fend off Google or other startups who've raised tens of millions of dollars? One, be the ground, uh, the, the, the training ground, the place where people feel safe and can learn what they can't learn anywhere else. Um, then secondly, just treat them fairly. <laughs> the rest is, the rest is, you know, is, is kind of straightforward and basic. Treat them fairly, pay them well. Yeah. I have a few other burning questions about your early life. So you said that like the young Dexter wanted to be a social studies teacher, right? So how did an aspiring social studies teacher become a politician and somebody involved in politics? <laughs> when did that change? Okay, so when I was a student um, at UC Berkeley, I ended up becoming um, the student regent. So, what's a student regent for people who don't know? <laughs> so, the University of California, it's probably one of the biggest and one of the more pre- most prestigious public university systems in the world. It's 10 campuses, and uh, it's a public university, so it was established by the constitution of the state of California, right? So it's chartered. 
And in the constitution, in the middle of like uh, the 1960s student movements, they had, uh, the students in the 1960s had won uh, the right to put a student on the Board of Regents. So the Board of Regents governs all 10 campuses. It's like the legislature that sets the admissions policy, that sets the budget, that hires and fires the, the seniors, the senior administrators. And these are folks that are like, you know, the governor sits on the Board of Regents. Um, they're Nobel laureates who are administrators that were responsible for hiring and firing. <laughs> so this is a big deal. I was a student. I was nominated by the students, all 360,000. So I represented 360,000 students. And um, the reason why I went for the position was because I myself thought that the admissions criteria restricted access, especially restricted access to people who are disadvantaged. So that's why I went for the position. Um, I happened to be it. And when I was on the Board of Regents, I was actually, I actually passed uh, a number of policies when I was there. Okay. And, you know, imagine me. Well, like, imagine I was like a 21-year-old sitting around the table, Nobel laureates, the governor, like the owner of Paramount Pictures was a regent. I don't know if you know the Power Rangers, but, you know, the Power Rangers. It's just a lot of older experience and very well-respected people. And then there's you, right? And you're in your eyes, you're like, I'm just a 21-year-old sitting here representing the students. (laughs) Yeah, like these are the folks that politicians went to to get support. <laughs> yeah. They were like, and the, now you're on the, the same. <laughs> yeah. And I was at the same table, right? And, you know, uh, like there was several initiatives where actually I was running point on getting a, a legislation passed. University of California, one of the, them, the University of California was the first university system uh, to adopt a, a green building policy and a sustainability standard. And this is before the whole you know, um, movement for sustainability became mainstream. Um, so that was mine. Um, I worked on a campaign to, uh, um, instill or to, to institutionalize Filipino American language and history studies on campuses. So like the head of Asian American. When I was applying to to college, I saw something about Filipino American like studies. I was really really surprised to see that. (laughs) So is that because of you then? Well, I was, I was the insider. I was, so there was a, a, I was, there was like a multi-campus campaign at the UC system and I was, the, I helped organize that. And I was kind of, it was funny, like there was a demonstration uh, in front of the chancellor of UC Irvine, really good, really good person. He ended up becoming the head of the National Science Foundation. So, but the chancellor, there was a demonstration in front of his office it was for Filipinos in support of Filipino American studies. And I happened to be meeting with the chancellor on the inside at the same time. So <laughs> I was in the office talking to the chancellor about yeah. uh, why Filipino American studies is important. And there are demonstrators outside and, you know, we're all working together. So I think that um, the goal there was to kind of get just a handful of folks tenured, which around which would start to build like broader programs and institutions because once you get people on the inside once you get them tenure track once they can't get fired anymore then then you can all uh, build a critical mass so 
yeah, it was, it was a lot of things like that. So kind of coming back to your original question, one of the, the administrators asked me, so, hey, what are you going to do after your term's done? And I was like, well, I plan to become a teacher. He's like, Dexter, if you become a teacher, you'll impact 30 students at a time. And he said, but look at what you just did. You, know, you passed X, Y, or Z policy. You can yeah. affect society at a grand scale, right? And, you know, the UC system, it's a huge system in the most populous state. Mm-hmm. And it's like the fifth largest economy is like, think about the impact that you can make as in policy. So that's how I went from like trying to think about how to affect 30 students at a time and setting their personal trajectory to trying to affect systems um, uh, through policy. And I guess that your extension is like, well, how did it jumping into tech? Now I'm still actually working in the same problem, which is connect preparing people for work, but not at the public systems level. I'm looking at it from the market level, right? So private interventions uh, to be able to create opportunity for people. Yeah. But what was it like to, to work in politics, right? You said that at the end of it, you felt like, okay, politics will destroy character. Um, you're not really a confrontational person and all these other things. So what is it like to work as a politician, especially in the position that you were in? I, I felt that I could be uh, a strategist and an advocate, but I couldn't be a politician. I think uh, a politician, you have to fight and you have to win in order to be effective. Uh, I like building systems that where multiple parties can win, right? So uh, I think from when I see it would destroy my character, like I probably, as a strategist, I probably could win. I could, I, I helped other people win uh, for, for public office, but I don't think I would have, uh, it would have been very dissonant with who I was as a person, right? So the role that I played uh, um, in politics, and this is actually really directly related to kind of building communities in tech, which is um, we broke through glass ceilings for Filipino Americans by creating, by connecting disconnected communities. So, you know, in 2009, there was a local race in Alameda for somebody who was running, somebody who I knew was high integrity, really good. He was running for his first office, which was city council. Yeah. Uh, and what I, what I'd done was I created a coalition of, of supporters and volunteers from like LA, Washington, DC, New York, who are all focused on helping this person win for local office. Yeah. It was a slam dunk election. Then he ran for state office and broke the glass ceiling in California. And now he's the attorney general of California, uh, who he's the one who replaced Kamala Harris <laughs> after uh, uh, she became a vice president. Then her successor became the uh, a cabinet secretary. And then Rob Bonta was appointed to be that. that. Oh, got it. So it's literally the top uh government official in the justice system in California. And he's, I would bet money that he'll be the next California state governor, uh, Filipino. Right. So yeah. breaking through these ceilings, this, you know, like this is a, a matter of strategy, looking for leverage points for people to get ahead 
And, you know, in this, in that instance, the way in which we were able to achieve it is we connected disparate communities and focused their energy to get this person in office. And now that he's there um, and other folks that we helped get in, they're pulling up Filipino Americans behind them into government posts, helping them other folks run for office. So Filipinos are actually there. We have several mayors in California that are, are Filipino American, uh, several board members, folks from all like, you know, mostly center to center left, but, uh, or all left. Um, I think there's just this, this kind of groundswell of support when you focus energy. So to come back to your question, I can apply strategy and build systems that can break through like barriers like this, but I could never be the principal. I could never have been, I came to the realization I couldn't have been the person who would have run for office. I mean, when you talk about it, it sounds easy. Like, okay, I'm going to bring groups of people, bring in support, and we're going to help this person get into office. But I mean, like putting it into perspective, you're very young when you still, when you got into to politics, you stayed there for 10 years. So what were the, like the real challenges or the most memorable moments um, of your, your career, right? Yeah, I think like... Um... I always had a day job, which, you know, was boring. And I always had night activities where I was kind of moving and shaking, right? So the biggest challenge was that I didn't know how to make a career out of solving the problems that I wanted to solve. So I always was looking to, you know, creating um, a community-based organization or helping volunteer for somebody who's running for office is a night job. So the biggest challenge for me was I, I didn't know how to align what I wanted to do as an individual, solving the problems I cared about solving with um, making a, a life out of it. And I think when I made the the jump to become an entrepreneur, I saw for the first time that, no, I can actually put those two, two things together, right? Being able to pursue problems that have an impact on society, ideally those that have, well, in, in the case of startups that can be profitable to solve, but I, as a person can, you know, leverage my strategy skills, my community organizing skills, uh, my ability to mobilize people towards a vision. And it's now just kind of one integrated effort rather than a bifurcated night and day job type of scenario. Like before, when you were working in politics, you, you had that division between night and day, but now it's like sort of the whole day's work, you mean? Yeah. Now now I work night and day. <laughs> but, but for the same purpose, at least, right? <laughs> yeah. It's towards just rowing in the same direction. Like a lot of folks uh, ask uh, Pia, my wife, like, how's Dexter doing? She nailed it. Uh, she, she knows exactly how I feel. Dexter is like 10 times busier, but 100 times happier. Yeah. Because this... The, the purpose alignment and, you know, my ability to, to bring solutions to the world that affects people's lives, I think it's there. Um, but I can also make a career out of it, make a, well, make, in this case, a, a profitable business about it. I mean, it's hard to not be true to yourself, right? Like in the work that you do, um, and even like just knowing that other people don't see the way that you want to be seeing yourself, right? When did you feel that conflict like the most? Well, I think actually I won't be judgmental. Uh, I think there, there are many 
folks uh, who have careers and uh, founders who who want to make money and who want and that money represents stability. It represents being able to provide for for folks that they care about. It means being able to do things that they really love doing. For me, I think the money has always been a means, but not the goal. It's not the end that I was pursuing. And uh, I think that when I, the moments where I put money first are the moments where I feel the least happy, right? And the least secure. Uh, When I put the problem first, when I put the goal first, creating access to employment, creating, connecting people with opportunities in ways that don't exist now, that, um, that that's, it brings both uh, financial upside, but then also joy, right? Um, you know, I think like we're, with Swarm, we're in a space right now where the, the way, the reason why I founded Swarm, uh, co-founded Swarm with my co-founders, I just started to realize after having interviewed a number of professionals, people were getting jaded with their jobs. They're getting jaded, leveraging their skills and time to create value for someone else, for somebody else's vision, for somebody else's profit. And people were increasingly turning to uh, doing side projects, or many of whom already have left their jobs to be able to pursue something that is aligned with what they wanted to do, uh, or to become fully independent. So narrowing in into the space where I'm familiar with, like building software, uh, design development, product management, I thought uh, this is a a really interesting problem to solve because uh, jobs no longer are full time, you know, they're no longer exclusive. It's no longer binary. You're working for one one company or another. Um, It's now kind of, it's a range of, hum, of of commitment. And I, I believe that we can enable people to, to work flexibly um, without having to work alone. You know, and I yeah. think that uh, oftentimes when people make that jump to want to work on their own, work independently, work flexibly, oftentimes it means having to leave their company. Or if, even if they take a side project, it means that they don't have people to give them feedback because they don't have a team anymore. So I think ultimately anchoring on providing people that option to work on what they want to work on, when they want to work, um, with whom they want to work, without having to do that on their own. That's that's the, the space where Swarm is right now. And I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I think it's really interesting too. Like your first venture uh, was Calibre, which matched people with jobs. And now... You're also still sort of in the same space, but instead of matching people to jobs, you're sort of helping people not, you know, get tied to like a full-time job and have like freelance gigs. I think personally, like for me, when I left my job and then I started back scoop on my own, sort of it's, it's sort of similar to being like a freelancer because I'm still working on my own, right? Like, especially in the early days, like I could tell it was really lonely. And I think like, especially if you're somebody who is doing multiple side projects, it's also very hard um, to manage a lot of other things like added to feeling lonely added to not like getting a lot of like feedback or help you also want to have like peers around you who are doing the same thing yeah. and I, I think personally that's something like I lack like I just came like from high school and then I took a job 
then I started my own company. It's like, I didn't have anyone my age who was also starting a company. <laughs> and right? it's, just, it's hard to, to, to manage that kind of cycle. Um, or even just like, I didn't have anybody that I was close to who was also starting a company at the same time. But like, I guess a freelancer, like one, you already don't have the security, right? Of the full-time job. You're already having that like super tough time. Then you don't get feedback. You're looking for more gigs. It's just a really difficult time too. <laughs> and I think like, um, and that's the the curse of working on your own. But there are also a lot of folks who are trying to do the same, right? Yeah. And I think that uh, the it sounds so simple, but creating a space, holding a space where they could do that, it's like parallel play. Do that with each other, help each other on each other's projects to open up opportunities for each other. You know, really that's all we're just doing is enabling people who are working independently to be next to each other, to support yeah. each other, and to create incentives and systems to make that, uh, to sustain that and make that easy. Uh, it's not, uh, w- w- when you look at it, it's, it's, it's a very simple solution that the world just has, I don't know, has a blind spot. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, being able to essentially collectivize people, bring people together, create a, create a context for them to, to share revenue, to share opportunities with each other, uh, and to share support and feedback is that's, that's what we're building right now. Uh, and it's 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 interesting. I think, like uh, Amanda, when you started, but like it's phenomenal what you've been able to do with Backscoop. Because when you reached out to folks for support, people rallied around you. Yeah. Right? And I think that that that's the like they're they're especially when you're when you're looking at folks who are trying to build companies, founders, um, and even investors. People want to support, can support, and it just it's a all you really need is initiative and a moment to catalyze that and. Yeah, people people rally around it, and I think even beyond that, like it doesn't have to be someone like directly giving you help. But I think just knowing a community is there and a community is there around you is actually just very helpful. Like just having a space that you know, because people like you, people who can support you if you want, might actually be more I think meaningful than even having their direct support. I don't know if you see that um, with your communities, but that's how I've personally felt. That's a good point because it's. Um... It's like insurance. It's not that being able to make the leap and doing work in the independent work, um, it makes that decision easier knowing that if and when you need help, it's available. Right. right? And, and it's, it's that if and when that takes some orchestration, that takes some like who, who do you go to? What, uh, how do you incentivize or at least reciprocate with the people who actually kind of answer your call for help? That if and when it's not constant, but you want the security that there are folks who have similar values to you or are like-minded, they can rally around you when when you actually put out the the, the call for help. Exactly, and I think like we gloss over it a bit, but I think what you did after your political career when you came back to the Philippines with Caliber is actually really really special. It's it's also a lot of firsts, not just like for the Philippines, but for like the general like startup ecosystem, right? But like thinking about it, like you came back and started building Caliber in 2012. I, I was already telling people when I started back so that, you know, in 2020, the Philippine startup ecosystem was still very, very early. But like 
we're talking about 2012. That's extra, extra early. So, so what were the challenges of not just building a startup in Southeast Asia in 2012, but in the Philippines? I've come across people who don't even know where the Philippines is. Yeah. Um, and try asking those people to invest. And that yeah. was what it was. That was our daily existential thing. So uh, my co-founder, uh, like founder, actually, Paul was the one who, uh, Paul Rivera was the one who convinced me to move back to the Philippines um, to co-found Caliber with him. Now, uh, we, the dream was to, I, I, in the back of our minds, you know, I had always advocated for and worked in the Philippine American community. So, and yeah. Paul as well. So in the back of our minds, we, we made the commitment to take on the risks that come along with being a pioneer. Right. Yeah. So we knew that going into this, it's going to be hard because we would be the first. And the th- we weren't the first tech company. There, uh, like Sulit was actually who we looked up to. Yahoo was operating here at the time, you know, and uh, like there was some e-commerce that was happening. So we weren't the first kind of tech company per se, but we were the first like natively founded tech company that raised foreign VC to our knowledge. Yeah. Right. And um, we did so to, to solve this problem of connecting people with work to, and we, we, <laughs> uh, we, we used AI to personalize job search. Right. And add to the layer of things that, uh, that were really hard to do. We had to build an AI team in an era, there were no AI off the shelf uh, 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 tools. Uh, there were no graduate programs that taught AI research or machine learning. And, you know, it was, <laughs> it, we were building a SaaS platform in a market that was still buying, you know, software on disks. So yeah. the market conditions were just very early. We were committed to, to solving this problem, personalizing job search. And we wanted to kind of, we were willing to break the ice for the for everyone else. Um, so we ended up. Uh, uh, this was Paul's initiative. Uh, we applied for Y Combinator. It happened to be the first time they allowed international startups in. So we're the first everything first from Southeast Asia, first from the Philippines, um, because it was the first. The the first and the immediate challenge was it was really hard to raise money abroad. Yeah. At the time, the U.S. market was just massive, and most investors felt that you know they, they didn't want to export their capital because they could make enough uh, just focusing on the U.S. Secondly, they um, these tradi- uh, traditional VC didn't really have a footprint in the Philippines, so they couldn't really help. So, you know, it was you know for, they can't connect for, you for, with talent, or they can't connect you with some friends here who can help you with your business, which are things that are very common among value-added investors yeah. now, right? But before that's like non-existent. <laughs> so like we we ended up raising money from Kickstart, who has founded the same that you, uh, we were. Um, so was, like we actually shared an office for a time. <laughs> it was, oh, okay. was real pioneer. Is it? 55 Paseo. So we we're kind of like building this thing together, building the ecosystem together, building our, our, our company together. So right off the bat, it was extremely difficult to hire. Uh, people with... There were there were no companies who were using the tech stack that we committed to. Like back then, Angular was new, Python was our backend, and uh, PostgreSQL was like in our database. 
nobody was, we couldn't hire data scientists. We couldn't hire AI. So the reason why we started to alleviate for ourselves all these uh, requirements for college degrees, because quite literally nobody was training those skills. And we, we threw out the window, the requirement for years of experience because people, no other company in the Philippines <laughs> were using uh, the technologies that we were using to build software. So let's say if somebody had a four-year degree in like, computer science, you know that's not really useful for you because whatever they taught there is not really what you need. And at the same time, let's say they work for five years as a software engineer somewhere, um, whatever they're using there is also not useful for that caliber at the time, which is why you eliminated those. Correct. Right. And we built, you know, we built our own assessments to test out. Uh, we hired super smart folks who are passionate about what we're doing. So essentially what the way in which we solved our own problem is we hired for people who can learn. And the second thing that I, uh, the second kind of problem that I'd faced is that I needed to find how to get those skill sets into my team. So I ended up, we ended up taking money uh, from a mid-year network. Uh, so they were uh, one of our seed investors. The the people who worked at Omidyar Network were very well connected to the PayPal and eBay mafia. Yeah. So I started to leverage those networks to identify operating mentors to train my team members. So like I had um, Susan Phillips, who's, who headed uh, marketing for eBay Motors. She trained my whole team on persona-driven customer journey management. Yeah. Then I, I got Dean Howard, uh, who was head of design for, for one of the eBay um, divisions, uh, to train, like, literally on a weekly basis for two years. He sat down with my design and product management team to do design reviews. So we were, we got very intense on um, seeking external capacity capability. And I just focused on constant training for my team members and, and for myself as well. Many of those folks are now who went through that period of training uh, have gone on to co-found their own companies. Uh, Joanne, who's you know, um, she's she joined us as an intern. Um, she ended up uh, when, after she left Caliber, she they assigned her the uh, to 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 build the video product, and she led the GTM, and now she's the group product manager that oversees uh, Canva's video product. So I think like you know, it was being able to intensively focus on problem solving um, and learning really kind of produced really excellent thinking, really excellent um, engineers, product managers, and designers. And that's kind of how we built our um, employer brand and how we're able to attract a lot of talent. So raising capital is a challenge right off the bat. Hiring was a challenge right off the bat. Uh, And then just the market was not digitized in the way that it is now. Yeah. This is before uh, smartphones uh, became saturated, uh, saturated the market. So we actually, I remember Joanne pitched launching a mobile app. Yeah. Uh, and why, why we needed to do that. Because the Android phone uh, prices were dropping at the time and more people could afford them. So it, things, so it was very different. It was very early for tech like in the region. So I think for us, we, we, we wanted to just uh, prove that it could be done. We wanted to genuinely solve this problem. And we kind of socialized, and, okay, there is talent here. There is a market here. And 
demonstrated that it is possible to build a tech company in the Philippines. I think, like, honestly, like, listening to that, it just sounds so tough. Like, the founder journey is also tough. Now, you add on to the fact that, like, you're trying to fundraise for a country that most of your investors don't know about. And the second thing is, like, you can you can't even hire, like, a team because nobody has, like, the skills. So you have to train them yourselves and find ways to get them trained. I, it doesn't right. sound, like, easy at all. And I think that even hiring nowadays is already a challenge. So imagine, like, back then, like, uh, I am already like stressed for you, <laughs> but like <laughs> I, I think my my question is like, how did you sort of like bridge that gap like as a founder? Because what you did was sort of like you trained up the ecosystem for your team, but at the end of the day, training up your system, I mean your that your team sort of helps the future tech ecosystem. So you're sort of planting the seeds. It's like doing what all the other tech founders should should be doing, but you know, probably can't do because they're busy trying to build a business and really find other ways to to hire. But then like how did you bridge then the personal gap for yourself also? Cause like how did you learn how to fundraise better? How did you learn how to to solve the problems this way? Instead of, you know, maybe you you, you could just give up, right? <laughs> or you could just like complain and say like, hey, the market was too early and we shut yeah. down, right? <laughs> I, I think that, you know, um, we felt that we're carrying the flag. So don't let the flag drop on your watch. I think that, that was the, that's what gave us the motivation to keep pushing in spite of being tired, exhausted, frustrated, uh, being criticized for being slow, being criticized for not uh, uh, having a big enough market. I think the market was just undefined when we decided to make the jump. But again, like we felt that, you know, I, I don't want to say that we wanted to be like, we planned to be the godfathers, but we, we, we just wanted to prove that the, the ceiling could be broken. <laughs> so like the same thing you did in and, your political career, you, you've been a pioneer before, you broke the glass ceiling before. So maybe this to you was sort of natural already, right? Even though it was hard, definitely. It, it was definitely. So it's, uh, you know, and like because it's ecosystem, and there's so many people involved, and so many people who contributed to that. I could certainly not take the credit. My job was to say that it can be done, right? And to show bits and pieces that if we work together in certain ways, that we can crack it, right? And um, you know, I, I like a lot of the fruit of that strategy work, whether if it was when I was a student regent, you know, we didn't have Filipino studies. It didn't really take hold until 10 years after I'd stepped down. You know, Rob Bonta didn't break the glass ceiling until after I had moved to the Philippines, like five years that I, I'd, um, yeah. I'd left. So a lot of that work was seed planting and just kind of convincing people that if we work together towards this vision for strategic, if we contribute a little bit, uh, to this part or that part of of a, a broader strategy can happen, and I think that's that's I think if if I only had one skill, it's doing that is identifying what is the strategy, the vision, the strategy, and the bits, the parts of that strategy that people can contribute to uh, from where they are, and and over time it kind of orchestrates and and onto itself. So yeah, I think uh, that's perhaps what I learned uh, being a trying to a 21 year old trying to influence Nobel laureates and governors and politicians and how to, to mobilize and change. 
probably that skill set has uh, carried forward into to doing other things. Um, but again, I wasn't, I can't, con- uh, I, I do not, I refuse to take credit for, for actually the glass ceiling being broken. Cause like I, yesterday I was, uh, I was on the, the, uh, a panel with Roland Rose. He, he probably lo- raised one of the largest, uh, uh, rounds for a venture startup in the Philippines. Right. And it, it's really his, that, that scale of, of a company that can actually reach scale, right. Caliber broke, you know, it broke the ice. Right. But it, it's like the Kumus, the Sarisukis, the, uh, the, uh, the great deals, even uh, the PDAXs that are going to actually scale up the ecosystem. And the cool thing is I, I like Caliber broke the ice, but then my second company, I think, can participate in that scaling. It's so much easier the second time around. <laughs> to find talent, you mean, and to, to build to find a talent. Yeah, everything. to find talent. People believe in the Philippines. It's like, it's a great place to be a founder right now because it's a new frontier market for a lot of VC. And for tech companies, so yeah. I don't have to prove anything anymore. It's there, so I can actually build my company faster. We can be as nimble as the market will allow us to be. So yeah, what was the personal toll on you, like during the times of like building Caliber, especially in that market as a founder, on your personal life, or like like let's say after you switch off your laptop or you get home from the office? That's a really great question. Um, uh, well, like I measured it empirically, I gained ten pounds for every million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Correlation, causation. I'll leave it to to, to, to people to judge. Um, Maybe we should measure know, after you raise your next round. Let's see. <laughs> yeah. The swarm is to lose ten pounds for every million. So that maybe that's my like you know my my self challenge. Lose ten yeah. pounds for every million you raise. I think that. Um, it's a really great question. When I be, I didn't have like you mentors or people who are doing what I was doing. Like yeah. Paul and I were in it together, right? But you didn't have um, people look up to you in the right? ecosystem. So like everything always felt like nobody was there to reassure us that we we're not going to fail. Yeah, <laughs> and that the cortis the cortisol the the stress level, you know, I was. Even when I would go for, you know, just like to get a, a relaxing spa day. Yeah. I was just, I couldn't just stop thinking about how do I keep from not failing? How do I not, uh-huh. you know, it was just this existential thing and it was not healthy. Yeah. I just, it was just really hard to, 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 to have assurance. Having gone through that uh, as uh, and now I'm working on my second company, I kind of know that uh, where to embrace uncertainty, that uh, failure, uh, I know like how to expedite learning loops uh, and I know like what failure really looks like. Um, so that, you know, the, the strain, the eco chamber of doubt is, I think it doesn't exist the way it did for, for, for or when I was building Caliber, it was, it was really tough. I lived in a backpacker hostel for the first eight months working at Caliber. No way. Um, on, yeah, like I, I, before we'd raised the seed round, I, like, I wanted to keep my personal overhead low. So I lived in a six post, six bed, you know, ba- a room in a backpacker hostel. Where are the other in people? Poblacion. 
Like, was it was well, it Paul and other bunch of other people you knew or like strangers? Well, Paul Paul was a part of uh no 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 Paul 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 had his family had a condo in Rockwell, so a lot of the other folks. But you know, I needed my space. I I just wanted to like, you know, I felt like I was I became a monk just to to kind of like get into a space, and it was just hilarious. Like I think. The only t- like uh, in San Francisco, when you're in your twenties, you rate you save enough money to go backpacking in Southeast Asia. That's like the cool That's thing true. to do. Yeah, you know. So like here I was living in a backpacker hostel, and like you know, ended up being eight months. Uh, so at first it was like really exciting, um, and uh, like the hostel was in Poblacion, right? So the heart of the red light district. And back then there were no cafes; there were just red lights you know yeah so. <laughs> it's not it's not the, and, the exciting place it is now yeah it was just exciting for like you know nefarious reasons um <laughs> it was the only cheap place to, to to you know to get a backpacker uh place so when i was uh in the backpacker hostel the only time i felt sorry for myself was i happened to get bronchitis and um oh a doctor friend of yeah a doctor friend of mine said that uh, just wait it out, um, and if you can get some salt and hot water, uh, and gargle it to you know irrigate the, the the infection. And you know I scrounged through the pantry in the uh, backpacker hostel, and all I managed to find, uh, I had hot water. All I managed to find was two packets of uh, toyo. Oh, soy sauce. So um, uh, soy sauce, soy sauce, right? So yeah. like the only time I felt sorry for myself was like pouring those two packets of soy sauce and hot water and gargling it and you know i was like man what the heck did i get myself into (laughs) this is when you're starting caliber not not the soul searching part before right right it was it was actually when i actually uh committed to living in the philippines full-time so uh to build caliber that's right you know it was it was just funny like uh, there was somebody uh like i think he was thai he walked in because as i was gargling and coughing I spit the soy sauce into the the yeah. sink in the the shared bathroom, and he looked at the sink. He looked at me <laughs> coughing, saw the black stuff, and he was like, "Oh my gosh, this guy has like tuberculosis or something." <laughs> he was your your roommate, sorry, quote unquote roommate. I got yeah, it. he was just my roommate. He was my roommate at the time. Got it. So, um, like the moment that we had raised, closed our seed round, I put everything into my backpack. Walked down the street to the Gramercy, and I was like, "Can I see condos?" And moved in the same day. And I've been, I've, I'm still in the Gramercy now. So, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. the same unit or like a different unit? I I, I moved twice uh, in different units. So, like, I just upgraded to a bigger unit when I was uh, um, when I got married and uh, had a kid. Yeah, it's also I think like the origin story for like. So, so the the dirty secret is that I uh, I was in charge of finding the office. Yeah. So I ended up putting the office walking distance from where I lived. <laughs> so I that's mean, like that's, Caliber's that's... office <laughs> was in Publishon, and then apparently other startups started to put in you know their 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 uh, their offices in Publishon. I didn't know. I don't know if it was because of Caliber or just they had the same idea we did. I don't know, um, but. Yeah, now 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 there's some talk of it being called Sinigang Valley. I like the Filipino version of Silicon Valley. <laughs> and I guess like to wrap up, I I have one last question for you. 
um, outside of work, what's one thing you want to accomplish um, in your personal life? Um, whether that's something this year, this month, or something way beyond. But um, what's something that you want to accomplish um, with your personal life? Just one thing. Well, I, I'm also a dad, so kind of seeing my son excel, uh, getting uh, getting him in school grounded. He he's uh, he comes to all of our meetings. He he, he uh, like our community members. We we're called swarmies, so he's like yeah. kind of swarmy number one. Yeah. So be, being able to get him like enrolled in like um, classes and and get a good start post pandemic, because that's personal. And then I also, um, I, I, I designed my own barongs just for myself. Oh. And I, uh, I, I kind of want to like design a collection uh, for myself this year. This is my one kind of creative outlet. How would you define barongs to people who aren't Filipino? Uh, okay. So they're, uh, they, they are Philippines business wear or formal wear. Um, it's a shirt, uh, a shirt shirts that are, yeah, it's, it, it can be long sleeves, it can be short sleeves. They're considered now traditional and, uh, kind of Filipino-esque, but, um, yeah, I just essentially designed my own shirts and I kind of want to do a, another collection this year. How do you design them? I like, um, wherever I go, like whenever I travel, I always collect fabric. So oh. initially, I collected a lot of fabric here in, in the Philippines from different, you know, indigenous communities, so, um, embroidered fabric, woven fabrics. Uh, when we launched Caliber in um, Indonesia, I started to collect batik. Oh, um, yeah. So, so yeah, just I, 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 I go, my philosophy is uh, beach to boardroom. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's something that you can wear on uh you know, on a resort, uh, and then just put on a pair of slacks and then like walk into a, into a, like a formal, like business meeting. So, uh, I dress for comfort for style and yeah, I just like, it's, it's kind of my one public form of creative expression. Did you design the barong for your, your wedding? I saw the photo, I think. Yeah, I did. So I got the, you know, I got, I got it from, and there's small little like kind of tweaks that, in a in a a more traditional barong that you know, so I'll do things like I'll I'll wear different under um, uh, undershirts to to kind of put color in. I'll uh, I'll put hidden pockets into places. Oh, so uh, uh, yeah, like uh, like jacket pockets. So I could put put a place uh, for myself. Yeah. Home. So I, I'm the kind of person who um, likes comfort and practicality i i wore a cardigan every day in san francisco so now not uh because it's too hot to wear like sweaters here i i, I put uh, the reason why i like cardigans because i like putting my hands in pockets yeah so i i ended up putting pockets into my barong so i have a place to put my hands when I'm are you wearing around. a barong today i i, I was but <laughs> oh. but since this is not video recorded i i opted that <laughs> okay well, I really enjoyed talking to Amanda. I think that um, being a founder is requires people to put their their mind, their soul, their heart, their pocketbook uh, to making something that doesn't exist real. And I appreciate how Backscoop has been 
telling the story behind the valuation, telling the story behind the the, the round size uh, or the traction. I think that really it's people um, that take things, take take problems and create solutions. And um, I hope that for those that are thinking about starting a company, both the, the downside, the scary parts are uh, maybe a dose of reality, but then also the joy, the excitement, the opportunity to work with amazing people on hard problems together yeah. is a source of encouragement as well. Thank you so much for, for joining me today, Dexter. Yeah. See you soon. Awesome, Amanda. Cool.